Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Hegel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then... She can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. If you've ever been in a printing plant, you know how loud they tend to be. 
The rhythmic banging and clicking of the presses combined with the purr of constant, high decibel white noise is surprisingly soothing once you get used to it. But on the morning of September 14, 1989, something about this familiar cacophony was suddenly off in a large facility in Louisville, Kentucky. It was too loud and too erratic, too sharp for the steady hum of the machines, and then screaming, because it wasn't the machines, it was gunfire, and by the time silence descended on the standard gravure printing plant, a half hour later, at roughly 9am, 12 people were wounded and 8 were dead. The identity of the killer was never in question. He put a Sig Sauer, a 9mm pistol, under his chin and died at the scene. The focus of the investigation was rather on the potential accomplice of this mass murderer, which you are likely already familiar with. You may know it by its street names, like Happy Pills or Bottled Sunshine. You may know it more formally as the popular antidepressant Prozac. In the late 1980s, Louisville, Kentucky was enjoying a renaissance of sorts, but like most urban revivals, this one was rather one-sided. The more affluent east end of the city enjoyed most of the financial upside, while the west end, home to more marginalized groups, including minorities and immigrants, continued to struggle. The class divide was palpable through Louisville, and Joseph Thomas Westbecker lived on the wrong side of it. He was born here on April 27, 1942, as an only child, and a year later lost his father to a tragic accident. Thomas R. Westbecker was a construction worker who suffered a fatal fall from the East End Church he was working on. His widowed mother, Martha, wasn't prepared to raise him on her own. He spent a lot of this time with his maternal grandmother, Nancy Montgomery. At age 13, Westbecker spent a year at St. Thomas Orphanage for unknown reasons. Though he tried several times to make it through high school, these attempts halted when he was arrested for delinquency. As a result, he only maintained an 8th grade education. In retrospect, it was suspected he struggled with a learning disability. Like many dropouts, Westbecker started working odd jobs. His free time was mostly spent at Gus Billard's, a local pool hall. A friend he made there landed a printing job which earned him a decent salary. This upward mobility impressed Joseph enough that he applied for a similar position. After passing a physical, he began working at a printing company in December 1960. Colleagues at this first position noticed some idiosyncratic behavior. Westbecker washed his hands obsessively, and his workspace was always immaculate. In 1961, Westbecker married Sue White. They went on to have two boys. Joseph Kevin was born in 1963, and Jim was born four years later. Their marriage was happy at first, until Westbecker switched companies and failed to maintain any semblance of work-life balance. In June of 1971, he began working at Standard Gravure, the company which was owned by the powerful media empire family, the Binghams, specialized in printing magazine inserts for Sunday newspapers. 
The Binghams also owned the Courier Journal magazine, a weekly publication housed in a building adjacent to the standard Gravure building on Broadway and 6th Street. Westbecker's career as a pressman grew considerably more stressful when he was taught how to use the folder, the control panel of the printing press. By the late 1970s, he worked the folder two or three times a week and took advantage of overtime. This added responsibility was great for his family income, but not for his marriage. The long hours he worked took a toll. In June of 1978, he and his wife Sue separated. Their divorce was finalized in early 1980. In mid-August of 1981, Westbecker married a woman he briefly dated named Brenda Beasley. Because of the children from the previous marriage, he and his ex-wife were embroiled in a custody battle until September 1983, when Sue was granted full custody of the boys. Westbecker reportedly made no attempts to reach out to his own sons after that. Following the severance of his family, Westbecker reportedly grew restless and took on a drinking habit. It was around that time that he was diagnosed with manic depression and started seeing a psychiatrist regularly. Despite his efforts to seek help, his mental health continued to deteriorate. Several suicide attempts were made by Westbecker. One incident in 1982 found Brenda waking up next to him to find a hose taped to his face, with the other end connected to his Oldsmobile, left running in the garage. Another attempt to take his life was made in April 1984. Both times, Brenda rushed her husband to Our Lady of Peace Hospital. Westbecker was always fearful of losing his job and checked out the psych ward within a week. Brenda and Westbecker separated on May 25, 1984, and a divorce was finalized by November. But a year later, the pair moved in together. Neighbors' accounts would indicate they weren't living as a couple. They were rarely seen together and didn't share ownership of anything besides the house. Westbecker's mental state took a turn for the worse around 1985. He felt trapped by a job he had begun to hate and shown signs of agitation like pacing. He dealt with memory issues, fatigue, racing thoughts, and chronic insomnia. Westbecker's psychiatrist encouraged him to speak to his employer about his struggles. He went to union president Don Fraser to complain about the stress of running the folder. It was agreed Westbecker would be assigned to the folder less frequently. In 1986, the head of the Bingham family, Barry Bingham Sr., decided to sell all of their media holdings. This included standard gravure. Employees made a bid for the company, but it was ultimately sold to Michael Shea from Atlanta. In March of 1987, Westbecker was hospitalized again. Over the course of that year, he started amassing a collection of firearms. One person was informed of this new hobby because Westbecker regularly confided in him. Over the years, Westbecker had maintained a strong friendship with one of his standard gravure colleagues, James Lucas. They had begun working together in 1960 at the Fawcett Deering Printing Company. When Lucas transferred to standard gravure in May of 1971, Westbecker followed. They ended up working the same late shift, bolstering Lucas's status to Westbecker's sole confidant. One day, Westbecker had brought in a 38 caliber revolver he purchased into the plant to show Lucas. 
As quoted in Florida Today, Westbecker remarked to Lucas about co-workers. If any one of them came up to him and said anything other than what pertained to work-related conversation, he was going to blow their brains out. At the time, it sounded like an idle threat to Lucas. Little did he know, it was the first indication of what was to come. From May through October 1987, Westbecker made further efforts to improve his work situation. He filed two complaints alleging his employer had discriminated against him due to his mental handicap, one with the Human Relations Commission and another with the U.S. Department of Labor. Both filings were met with inaction. 1988 seemed to mark a breaking point for Westbecker. He purchased a new gun on a monthly basis. In January, he bought a 25 caliber pistol and a 38 caliber pistol in February. That winter, he also started seeing a new psychiatrist, Dr. Lee Coleman. The doctor recognized the long hours Westbecker worked was taxing on his mental health and advised him to decrease the length of his shifts. Dr. Coleman also started him on Prozac, which was the most prescribed antidepressant in the world at that time. The drug manufacturer, Eli Lilly and Company, earned more than $1 billion a year in sales from the drug. A few months later, Westbecker spiraled to a state of depression so severe, Dr. Coleman suggested a medical leave from work. Standard Gravure's sick pay committee granted Westbecker permanent disability leave when they learned of his diagnosis of manic depressive illness. While this accommodation may have come as a relief to most in his situation, Westbecker responded only with fury. The acquisition of more firearms soon followed. Westbecker's growing arsenal included a Winchester pump shotgun, two Mac-11s, and a Chinese-made Norinco AK-47, which was later traded for a top-of-the-line Polytech Legend AK-47. In the fall of 1989, Westbecker again confided in his friend Lucas. This time, Westbecker shared a hit list of six people at the company, which included company owner Michael Shea, Executive Vice President Don McCall, Press Room Superintendent Donald Cox, Employee Relations Manager Paula Warman, and Pressman and one-time foreman James Popham and James Sitzler. During that same conversation, at Lucas's kitchen table, Westbecker relayed some ideas about exacting revenge on the people he perceived to have wronged him. He spoke of hiring someone to kill those on his hit list, or by blowing up the plant, by using a remote-controlled airplane carrying plastic explosives. If those two options failed, he would barge in there, guns blazing. Westbecker added, Me and old Ak Ak will do the job that's been long overdue. Ak Ak is a slang reference to a military anti-aircraft gun. Lucas took these threats very seriously and ended up telling some of them to his intended victims, other co-workers, and even the head of his department. The warnings, which never reached upper management, went unheeded by anyone. It was a damp and foggy morning on September 14, 1989, setting a somber tone as if to foreshadow what was to come. At around 8.20 a.m., accounting clerk Diane Oman approached the main entrance on 6th Street when she noticed a man get out of a red Chevy Monza. This struck her as a bit odd, as parking on the street was prohibited until 9 a.m., 
to make way for deliveries to the plant. The man pacing on the sidewalk carried a large vinyl gym bag. As Omen rushed inside to start her workday, she had no way of knowing the bag was stuffed with high-velocity weapons and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Surveillance cameras aimed at the door that would have tipped off the company's security of Westbecker's arrival were non-existent. They had been removed months prior, after several acts of vandalism left them damaged. Upon entering, Westbecker headed for the elevators. There was no receptionist or security guard in the lobby. The stairway to the other floors was kept locked, but visitors could access the elevator. He pushed the button for the third floor, where executive offices were located. This was where his reign of terror began. When the elevator doors opened to the executive suite's reception area, Westbecker had his AK-47 at the ready. Assistant buyer Kathy Wilkins would later tell the Courier-Journal, the elevator doors opened and he just started firing. She took shelter from the active shooter in a closet and commented, I was probably in there about 10 minutes, but it seemed like a lifetime. Many others wouldn't be so lucky. At first, Westbecker's targets seemed random. Receptionists Sharon Needy and Angela Bowman were first amongst the victims, and it soon became clear anyone who got in Westbecker's way would suffer the same fate. Payroll administrator Joanne Self's office was close by and stepped out to see what the commotion was. After hearing two loud pops, she witnessed Westbecker approaching Mike Shea's office, one of the shooter's main targets, but the company owner and president happened to be out of town. The gravity of the situation gradually set in, along with three other employees. Self hid down the hall in the office of data processing manager, Mike Delph. A sound of gunfire echoed through the floor as one of the workers called 911. In the meantime, Westbecker pressed on, taking the stairs from the third floor to the building's basement and firing all the while. The basement hosted the plant's bindery in one of its press rooms. Unfortunately, this location led to the most casualties due to one key detail. It was just before 9 a.m. when there was a shift change between production workers. This meant there was twice as many people in the building than usual, which to Westbecker meant twice as many targets. Five workers were shot as he made his way between the two basement rooms. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, Let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. 
Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. In the basement press room, the gunman encountered John Tingle, a pressman Westbecker had worked with for nearly a decade. Tingle wasn't a target. He would later remark to the Courier-Journal, he didn't fire at me, I guess because he liked me. But the guys he had shot in the press room were friends too. A stairwell connected to the press room in the basement and the one on the ground floor. As he climbed the stairs, he continued firing then headed for a break room alongside the ground floor press room. Six or seven men filled the break room. Some managed to duck under chairs, while others were struck down by bullets. By this point, the police had been notified by several employees about the catastrophic event. Traffic was brought to a standstill on the surrounding streets, while emergency personnel waited to assist at a moment's notice. Several Louisville police officers bearing shotguns guarded the entrances while 56 officers and a SWAT team awaited instructions. 20 ambulances from the city and county emergency medical services line Broadway, ready to assist any victims. Sergeant Frank Portman from the Louisville PD had been one of the first responding officers. He commented about the crime scene to the Courier-Journal. Every place we went, we were stepping over people in blood. People were wailing, wanting help, with a shooting victim, there's not much you can do. It made me feel helpless. Police Chief Richard Donson told the newspaper it was like a war zone, adding it was the worst tragedy he had seen in his 28 years. Sergeant Portman led a team of officers through the building to find the shooter. They frantically searched floor after floor, but had trouble tracking Westbecker's movements amidst the carnage. As one anonymous officer would comment to the Courier-Journal, everyone was running around screaming when we got there. We just couldn't find him. He knew the building, and we didn't. The shooting had gone on for nearly 30 minutes when a distinct sound gave Westbecker pause. The crackle of two-way radio. This alerted him to the presence of authorities, prompting his final act. Returning to the press room, where he had spent many hours of his career... He pulled a pistol out of his pocket, held it under his chin, and pulled the trigger. And with that, the attack was finally over, leaving 13 injured and 8 dead. A few victims were killed at the scene, but the majority were rushed to the hospital, where they later died. It would take Louisville residents and victims' families a long time to heal from the fallout of West Becker's murderous rampage. Jerry Abramson, who was mayor at the time had aided emergency workers in evacuating the wounded and dying. He recalled the United Press International. It was carnage like a battlefield, blood and bodies everywhere. That man was a one-man war. The extent of Westbecker's attack was aided by two key factors, the aforementioned shift change and the loud cranking of the presses masking the sound of gunfire between floors. One detail stood out to those directly impacted. While firing, Westbecker could be heard cackling maniacally. This sound only contributed to the terror experienced by workers. 
Even if investigators hadn't been made aware of Westbecker's mental health struggles, reports of his laughter in response to killing would have tipped them off. This was a man deeply unwell. In the days that followed, psychiatry and behavioral sciences faculty at the University of Louisville offered free counseling to victims' loved ones and set up telephone hotlines to help the community cope in the aftermath. To press outlets, this mass casualty event brought to mind the elementary school shooting in Stockton, California that had occurred earlier that year. On January 17, 1989, a drifter bearing an AK-47 killed five children and wounded another 29, including a teacher, before turning his gun on himself. Local gun shop owner Ray Eager told the Courier-Journal business was booming since news broke out of the Stockton school shooting. He said, with all the media attention since then and all the anti-gunners attempt to ban them, the result has been massive sales. Both events raised questions about the easy accessibility to assault weapons. At the time, the only requirement for purchasing firearms in Kentucky was completing a federal form and showing ID. One of the questions on the form asked the buyer if they had been convicted of a felony or been involuntarily committed to a mental institution. No effort was made to verify information provided by the buyer. It was strictly on the honor system. It was clear Westbecker had intentionally chosen weapons that could inflict the most harm. Local gun dealer Doug Keisler explained to the Courier-Journal the distinction between a low-power gun and an assault rifle by saying, It's like a gnat compared to a sledgehammer. It'll go through a door, through two people, really tear up a person. With one pull of the trigger, a fully automatic assault rifle fires non-stop until the magazine is empty. A semi-automatic weapon fires only once per trigger squeeze, but still fires faster than a pistol or low-power rifle. Semi-automatic weapons can also be converted to fully automatic. Faster bullets impose more damage, which is why assault rifles tend to be the weapon of choice for mass shooters. An investigation was performed by the police chief Richard Dotson and chief of detectives Edward Mercer in an effort to understand what drove Westbecker to such extremes. James Lucas was interviewed because of his friendship with Westbecker. He relayed the warning signs. Westbecker collected guns, making threats, and growing more agitated over time. Lucas would later tell the Courier-Journal, I knew something was going to happen, but I didn't know when or what time or where it was coming from. I hid in different dark spots of the plant. I didn't go in the press room or stay around the presses, which I was there for, to combat my fear of the presses. I stayed behind rows of paper, knowing something was about to happen. Lucas had also survived a November 1988 explosion and subsequent fire in the plant that had injured 21. Less than a year had passed between the trauma of the explosion and Westbecker's shooting. Another work friend, John Tingle, told detectives Westbecker's anger was augmented by management continuing to assign him high-pressure jobs against his doctor's orders. Four out of the seven workers killed that day had belonged to the same union as Westbecker. Dan Frazier, union president, told the Courier-Journal, I'd like to go back to sleep again and wake up to find this a bad, bad nightmare. Treasurer Frank Wheatley remarked on the tragic losses by saying, We lost family, brothers. We knew these men 20 years, watching their kids grow up. 
Detectives also interviewed Westbecker's neighbors to get a sense of the gunman's character. Dee Meredith told the Republic she thought he was very strange. I don't care what anyone says. This has been brewing for some time. The only sentiment of forgiveness came from one of Westbecker's aunts, who wasn't identified in the Courier Journal when she commented, All we can say is we love him. After all, this is something that a sick person did, not him. In the weeks that followed, lawsuits against various unknown defendants were filed by families of those killed and injured. Most of them were settled outside of court or were dismissed without a trial. Prozac manufacturer Eli Lilly and company merged as a viable big-name scapegoat for what Westbecker had done. Although Westbecker had discontinued his medication three days prior to the shooting, there were still so-called therapeutic dose in his system. This definitely wasn't the first time Prozac came under fire, since it had been approved for widespread medical use in the U.S. in 1986. There have been over 160 anti-Prozac lawsuits in both federal and state courts. The standard gravure suit had the distinction of being the first to make trial. It was also the only case against Eli Lilly involving mass murder. To prepare for the upcoming trial, lawyers gathered depositions from over 300 people who had known Westbecker. Testimony including that of his sons, his two ex-wives, relatives, friends, business contacts, doctors, co-workers, and neighbors. The trial was held at Jefferson Circuit Court on September 24, 1994, over the course of 47 days. The jury heard testimony from 75 live witnesses, arguing for and against the notion that Prozac triggered Westbecker's rampage. In opening statements, defense attorney Paul Smith criticized testing procedures for the drug. The manufacturer designed and oversaw clinical trials themselves, which seemed like a major conflict of interest. Eli Lilly also failed to report negative findings from the clinical trials to the USDA. Some patients had experienced side effects like agitation, chronic insomnia, and increased nervousness, but the benefits were touted instead. What's more, clinical trials didn't include patients considered a high risk for suicidal ideation or behavior. Smith also mentioned the fact that a German governmental agency responsible for evaluating the safety of pharmaceuticals initially denied permission for the introduction of Prozac there. Germany notoriously has strict regulations, and authorities express concerns over a possible link between Prozac and an increased risk of suicide paired with agitation. Though the government relented and permitted the sale of Prozac, they mandated the drug to be paired with a stern warning label. It stated that patients should be closely monitored on the medication and may need to be paired with a sedative. This evidence was used by the state of Kentucky to explain away Westbecker's behavior. As captured in the Courier Journal, Smith emphasized, We are at the mercy. Joseph Westbecker was at the mercy. Those plaintiffs in the case were all at the mercy of the inventor and seller of the drug. Smith's intention was to paint Westbecker as a victim of a duplicitous drug instead of a murderous madman he had received himself to be. One key witness was Dr. Lee Coleman, the psychiatrist Westbecker had been seeing. He testified that he had advised Westbecker to come off his medication and urged him to commit himself to hospitalization. Dr. Coleman said when he had saw him three days before the crime, 
He had seemed extra agitated and enraged. Defense attorney Edward Stouffer cited Westbecker's history of mental illness years before he was prescribed Prozac. He painted a picture for the jury of what kind of man the shooter was. Someone with a lifetime of estrangements who perceived his employer as the villain that had ruined his life. Stouffer also brought up how Paul Lucas had tried to warn people at the plant about Westbecker's plot for her revenge. According to the Courier Journal, he said, They never once called police. They never took any action to put out this fire of hostility in Joseph Westbecker's mind. Westbecker did everything but stand on top of the building and wave a red flag saying, I'm coming to get you, and Standard Gravure did nothing. In closing arguments, Smith made a last-ditch attempt to sway the jury. As quoted in the Courier-Journal, he said, They're attempting to convict the ill person that their drug is supposed to treat. They would depict Joseph Westbecker as a Charles Manson or a Jeffrey Dahmer or a sociopath who was destined from the womb to commit this act. Ultimately, Eli Lilly was deemed not guilty after a jury took less than five hours to reach a verdict. Randall L. Tobias, chairman and CEO of Eli Lilly, released a statement following the outcome. As quoted in The Messenger, it read, Our hearts go out to the victims of this terrible tragedy at the standard gravure plants. But the members of the jury, after hearing the scientific and medical facts presented during the trial, came to the only logical conclusion that Prozac has nothing to do with Joseph Westbecker's actions. September 1989 but the prosecution commiserated losing the legal battle. Lawyer Paul Smith told the messenger, Mr. Westbecker's situation was a sad situation. We just weren't able to get across that hurdle of Mr. Westbecker's existing anger towards standard gravure. I think that was something we couldn't overcome. It seems Westbecker's heinous act of retaliation had been born out of the perfect storm. Lack of preventative action from the printing plant after several warnings and Westbecker carrying around a festering rage that manifested as a killing spree. Three years after the shooting, the standard gravure printing plant permanently closed its doors and resumed the eerie silence of September 14th. The integrity of the building had been compromised by two different fires and was demolished to make space for a parking lot. For many, the disappearance of the plant was a relief. A local reporter named Leslie Scanlon responded with an article in the Louisville Courier-Journal, saying, In a strange way, the building's physical collapse seemed almost a blessing, considering how much cumulative pain echoed inside it. And I think that about wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.